I think we just had a holy moment by Jesus' grace, and I don't think I want to preach for anymore. Just want to sing and keep on singing. But since I'm up here, I might as well say some things. Um, sorry, those of you who are expecting something cool. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Good morning, City Light. I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you're here, that we get to join together as a family. And if you're new to us, if you're new here uh, joining with us in worship, I want to catch you up real quick as to what we're doing right now. So right now, we are in what we call the core team phase of a church plant. So that means we're we're building some rhythms, building our values, and actually that's what we've been preaching through for the last, I don't know, I think we're at 10 weeks now, is we've been preaching through our core values of down, up, in, and out. You've, we've also been renovating our building, getting it ready for our launch here in January. Um, we've been meeting together in homes with our city groups, learning about Jesus, learning about what the Bible has to say when he wants to, how he wants to form his church and, and how we are to conduct ourselves as a church. And we've also been in prayer. We've been praying a lot that God would form our hearts, but also form our family into being a Jesus-centered church. And so if you're new here, that's what we're about. That's what we're doing. Uh, today, uh, we get the privilege, as Austin said, to uh, basically be in one of my favorite passages of all scripture. It's going to be in Second. If you need to, look at the table of contents. No reason to feel shame for that, because I had to, too. Um, so, We're in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'd like to give you a little bit of history before we walk through that because, hey, we don't know what what exactly is going on here when we get to chapter 9. So uh, let me share a little bit of the story. So God's chosen people, Israel, requested a king. Uh, That king's name that God granted them, his name was Saul, and Saul ruled all all of Israel up until a point. So he kind of foiled his opportunity to be a king. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to give Israel a different king, not a part of your family. So he gave them David. Uh, David was not a part of Saul's family. He was actually chosen out by God. And, and so what that did is that made Saul very angry and very upset because, of course, he wants to keep it in his lineage. He wants to keep it in his family. And so what he made it his life pursuit to do is kill David. Now, what, we don't know, what you don't know also is that Jonathan, which is Saul's son, was best friends with David. So when I say best friends, I don't mean just the guy that you associate with every now and again. Like, I mean, these guys were tight. Like, they even had an uncomfortable friendship, how close they were. It's kind of like Austin and I. Uh, we joke around like he's my uh, office wife or something. But, uh, but no, um, <laughs> Uh, we're really close. Like, we don't have competition with one another necessarily when it comes to, like, like we'll compete as far as, like, basketball or something like that. But, like, as far as, like, who we are and how we function, we cheer each other on, we, we lift each other up, and that's our relationship. So that's what Jonathan and David's relationship was like. The only difference would be the fact that Austin's a little shorter than I think either one of them were. But he makes up for it with a great personality. So anyway, those are our guys that we're talking about, Jonathan and David. And uh, after Austin's talk last week, he spoke on how a lot of times God will call us into places that aren't very easy. And I think David's life qualifies as one of those lives. I think his story goes down to a call that wasn't easy because God says, hey, you're going to be king over Israel. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm great. But also your best friend's dad's going to try to kill you for a long time. So dude's on the run as, as God's chosen king for a long period of time. And so I'm not sure he was joyful about that. 
Now, David and Jonathan's friendship actually provided a way for David to flee Saul and get away from Saul so that he doesn't get killed before he gets his kingship. And so sometime later, uh, Saul and Jonathan, the the father and son, uh, get killed in 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 a battle. And so when they die, by God's grace, David becomes heir to the throne, the rightful king over Israel. So in that day and culture, though, here's, here's what happens. So if you become a king of a, a country or a people group, and you're not the heir to the throne from the previous king, what you do is you say, okay, I need to kill every son to the former king. So that means their grandson and their grandson's grandson, kill them all because for fear that they're going to overthrow you someday. And so that's usually, typically, in that day and age, they would go after the family of the former king. Because of this, all of Saul's family went on run. Like, they left, they were, they were fleeing their homes, and we encounter a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, what? Now, okay, so let me help you say that, okay? So let, we're going to say it together. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. No, for real, come on. Mephibosheth. There we go. So I'm going to say that a lot of times because this dude is an integral part of the story. Mephibosheth uh, is actually Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. And as a child, when they were rushing Mephibosheth out, his nursemaid was holding him. He was about five years old and she dropped him. And when she dropped him, his legs broke. And so at that time, when your legs break, they might heal up But because you don't have a doctor to put a cast around that, they don't heal properly. Therefore, he lost all function in those legs. So they're not useful to him. He was actually destined for a life of brokenness, poverty, and loneliness because his legs were broken. And so at at that time, therefore, other people had to provide for his needs. Like This was his entire life. And not only did other people have to provide for his needs... He was on the run because he thought the king was trying to kill him, which is when we pick up in our passage in chapter nine. I believe that this passage shows us that we can't know how to function as a family until we understand how we came to be in a family. And so my first point is the king initiates. Now, remember, Mephibosheth is hiding from David, uh, who is now king. And as David is ruling over Israel, he asks his servants to come to him. And here's what he asks. Uh, Verse 3 says, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There still is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of of, of um, Micker, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Now, King David sends Mephibosheth and initiates him. David, the king, initiates by seeking out his enemy's grandson in this scenario and asking him to come to his home. So he, he invited Mephibosheth to be in his home, not to kill him, but to actually show him kindness and grace. Here's why this is important. Mephibosheth is a crippled man. So in that day and age, if you were a crippled man, you virtually were useless, especially to a king. Because what kind of soldier are you if you can't walk? What kind of servant are you if you can't help yourself and need others to serve you? You see, when he invited him in, he invited a person who could not benefit David whatsoever. And so that's why it's an important scenario here. And even Mephibosheth himself sees that very clearly. In verse 8, here's what he says about himself. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog 
such as I. So he says two significant things in there, two very significant things. First, it says he paid homage. Now, to pay homage, a better way of saying that is to say that he prostrated himself before the king. What that means is that he, he, he didn't just get down on his knees. He actually went down face down to the floor and spread his arms out like this and put himself in the most humble, vulnerable of positions you can possibly be put in because you can't defend yourself. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight, but if you lay face down on the ground, you're going to lose. And so that's what he's doing. He's, he's humbling himself before the king and says, hey, who am I that you, would, that you would allow me to come into your presence? And then he goes a step further and articulates where he sees himself as far as worth. At that time, he said a dead dog, okay? But when we're talking about dogs, we're not talking about your, your, your pet Fido or the muskrat pet Austin has called Ellie. Like, not a cutesy little dog. Like, you're talking things that they would be deplorable to their families. Sorry, Kristen. Um, deplorable to you because they, they were scavengers. They'd go around, they eat trash, they would uh, bite people, and they just were worthless to their society. They did not like dogs. And then Mephibosheth calls himself a dead one. I have no use for a dead dog. I barely have use for my own dog because he's not scary a lot of the times. He runs away from things. But a dead dog is even worse because you can't play fetch with a dead dog. You can't walk a dead dog. You, in fact, it takes up space in your home. It'll start to smell really bad, and it's just worthless. It's, it's useless. And so Mephibosheth saw himself before the king and said, hey, I don't know why you brought me here because I have no value to bring to the table. See, like, this is why this matters. When our King Jesus first initiates toward us, we're in the same position as Mephibosheth. We are dead dogs. We do not bring God any value. In fact, we are his enemies. Scripture says very clearly that when, when we come to God prior to Jesus, we are God's enemies. Our very nature bursts out a posture that's against God and not for him. We don't desire or willingly enter into his presence we don't, uh, we don't give him his life, our life. Like, that's not a natural posture for us. Ephesians 2, 1 says, says it this way. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sin is essentially our proverbial broken legs. Uh, real true life only comes once we recognize our brokenness before a holy God and the fact that we cannot bring anything to the table, but he brings himself. And the only way we get that is by paying homage when he initiates us. Like David, God has every right to snuff our life right out because of our sin against the holy God. But by his grace, he initiates toward us and asks us to humbly come into his presence. God is and was initiating toward me as well a long time ago. He's still initiating me, but let me show you how he did it with me uh, early on in my life. So I don't know why this is, but this is the way God functions in my life. If he wants to move me, shape my heart, initiate me, he always brings some girl in my life, okay? So just bear with me. I don't know why. It's unique. He did it with my wife. Like, I'm a totally different person now. But the first time was, I remember, it was third grade. So, yeah, I know, right? They're like, what? Okay, I was infatuated with this third grade girl. She was the new girl in class. Her name was Denise. I thought she was cute. She listened to different music, but I was like, okay, whatever. So we would hang and her dad would inevitably say, hey, we, if you're going to hang out with my girl, you're going to come with us to church on Wednesday nights to Bible class. What a good man, right? 
So God would pursue me by bringing me to a church. And then, and then later on in seventh grade, which was my next infatuation, and I say infatuation because really, seventh grade? Not going to happen. But anyway, so we would go to the movies, we'd hang out and that sort of thing. But her father would say, hey, it's a priority that if I have a friend, if my daughter has a friend, we're going to go to church. And so we went to a church called Calvary Community Church on First and Superior. And the, the unique thing about that is that that's my former church. That's where I, I helped pastor uh, for the last five and a half years. So God was pursuing me in seventh grade to bring me to here now. But I still didn't respond. So then in high school, my junior year, again, I thought a girl was cute, and her family invited me to church, and so therefore they took me, my son, and my sister to church every single Sunday, and I felt really terrible for what kind of person I was, what I did on the weekend, but was not humble enough to submit my life to God. It wasn't until the fourth time that I found a girl that was cute, and God came after me, and I actually humbled myself before the Lord because I realized that I can't clean myself up. I can't bring any value other than my sin to God, and it clicked. So what I brought to the table was my sin, but what God brought to the table was himself and all of his goodness and grace. He initiated me, and he used everyone around me to do so. Church, God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you right now. He's put people in your life, in your place, around you because he loves you, has an affection toward you, and is consistently initiating with you right now. Christian, to become part of God's family, you weren't smart enough. You weren't brought up in the right home. You didn't do enough good things to get into his presence. No, no, no. The king, he initiated you. He, he sought you out. So my first point when it comes to being a part of the family of God, the king initiates. The second is that the king invites. Let's look at uh, how, what happened when David invites Mephibosheth into his home. Uh, pick it up in verse 9. It says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But... Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. David invited Mephibosheth to be a part of the king's family. David invited him to, to be his own son. He gave him a new life altogether. Like, he didn't have anything and then was brought into a family. For a king to give an inheritance and invite you to dine at his table took you from your low position and then made you a part of the family. Instant son or daughter if you were able to eat at his table. And so what happens for Mephibosheth, he moves, moves from a position of a slave to the place of a family member of a royal family. Do went from beggar to royalty in a blink of an eye because the king decided to have grace. So not only was he forgiven and initiated, but he was granted an honorable seat. So it's like this. So say you commit a heinous crime, okay? Like you completely just blew it, and you're standing before a judge, and someone vouches for you of higher credibility, higher honorability than you, and the judge says, you know what? You're forgiven. They vouched for you. They vouched the fact that you won't do it again. I'm going to let you go. 
This is not just that, but it's the mayor stepping in and saying, hey, here's the keys to the city. Here's an honorable place. Everyone's going to love you and appreciate you, and you're going to be a part of society, not as the person who committed the crime, but as the person who's the hero all of a sudden. Like, that's what he did with Mephibosheth. He, he didn't just forgive him. He gave him a seat at the table. Like Mephibosheth and King David, we also are given so much more than just forgiveness. See, we are saved as an individual life, but we are not saved to an individual life. We stand as part of the king's, King Jesus' sons and daughters, the family of our greater king, the God Almighty. The gospel not only saves us from our sin, but it also saves us into a royal family. I'm convinced this is why we love the story of the underdog. Like, right? Like, we love the underdog. I had a dude tell me earlier this week, he was like, yeah, I think I want this team to win the game because they're the underdog. I think we love that. We love it when someone who we don't expect all of a sudden achieves far more than they ever, anyone ever thought they would. The reason why is because I think deep down inside, we have a desire for that to be our story. That's what we want. We, we love the underdog. And we are given a higher position than David ever gave Mephibosheth. We are shown this micro story here to show the macro redemption that our king has actually brought to us. This was just a foreshadowing of how Jesus would actually invite you and me to eat at his table as sons and daughters. Most of us in the room are searching for something, searching for fulfillment in our life, right? Something to to take us out of our current position or situation and put us into a new one. So it might be a wife, a spouse, um, it might be a change of season, or it might be a change of Or circumstance when it comes to our kids, it might be a different job, a different financial situation. Some of us don't even know what we're searching for, but we continue on the treadmill of search anyway. And we say in our mouths and in our minds that, hey, I love that God has initiated me, but we really don't recognize the gift of that invitation that he's given us. And so Christian, do you know that you've, what you've been invited to? See, I think Mephibosheth understands what he's been invited to. If you look at verse 13 here real quick, here's what he's been invited to. It says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always, always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We are searching to have a piece of the pie in this world all the time. We're always searching for something that's greater than ourselves, to be a part of something that's bigger than you and me. And all the while, we have been given eternal, an eternal kingdom. All the while, everything that we need for salvation and that we need for eternal life has been already provided for us and given to us. Everything that we need for joy, satisfaction has been given to us in Jesus. We have been made children of our king, and yet we continue to go back as slaves. I'm confident that this is because we don't fully realize that we've been invited to be the sons and daughters of the living God. This comes with great implications. So, one of those implications is, is that this isn't the end for us. Like most of us in the room, as far as statistically speaking, will live to be 85 years old, give or take. And when that's gone, that's not the end for you. you you've been given immortality by God's grace because you're a part of his family, which means when, you, when, you're, when your life is gone from you, it's not gone. It actually just starts the eternal one. It starts the one that lasts forever in the presence of a king. 
We get to live forever with Jesus. We've also been given a new identity altogether. We no longer have to find our self-worth in sports or in in our team or our car, our money, our job, or how many A's we can get on a a scale of uh, A to D or F or whatever. We don't have to find our value in whether or not we're the person who does all the right things. We weren't given an invitation because we're special or because we have something that God desires from us. In fact, we weren't given it because he owed us anything. We were given it because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Our identity is no longer found in the things that we do, but in who we belong to. My second point to help us understand how we get to be a part of God's family is the king invites us into it. And then thirdly, final point, the king indulges. He satisfies and delights us. He gives us his presence and not just his presence like a gift. So let me show you what, what I mean by that. Mephibosheth, I think, valued the presence of his king so much. If you flip 10 chapters over to the right, so it's just a couple pages, chapter 19, we see Mephibosheth's response to being a part of the king's family. This is after, so here's what happens. David, David's son, Absalom, staged a coup against him, and so his father had to flee Jerusalem, the capital city. Because Absalom is unsuccessful at killing David, David returns to his palace and, and so what happens here, right before our, our section here, remember that servant Ziba early on? Well, what Ziba did is he, he also staged a coup against Mephibosheth and tried to get the king to kill him. He lied on a bro, okay? So basically, Ziba tried to get him killed by David, and David gave Mephibosheth's property. So all the inheritance that we just talked about 10 chapters ago, he took all of that and said, Ziba, you take it since Mephibosheth just stabbed me in the back. And then Mephibosheth later on is able to give an explanation as to what really happened. And let's see what Mephibosheth said. He said this, pick it up in verse 28. It says, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, this is King David, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall just divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, this is important, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Do you see what happened there? David offered to give half of Mephibosheth's inheritance back to him, but yet being the humble servant that he is, he said, No, I don't want your stuff. I want you. Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. We can see two responses to being a part of God's family, to being part of the king's family. The first one is an inexhaustible grace. Here's why I say that. Because because Mephibosheth has been an unmerited favor, favor that he didn't earn, grace, he was able to give that to someone else. You see, Ziba did not deserve to have anything because of what he lied about, because of what he did. Mephibosheth had every right to be angry at him, to, have, to seek out justice for his wrongdoing. He had every right to just take the half of the inheritance and say, hey, I'm done. I'm walking away. But instead, he had grace on Ziba in a very, very reckless way. Why? Because he saw it modeled for him. David modeled this for him. He understood what it took for him to be a part of the king's family and have the inheritance in the first place. It was inexhaustible grace from David that allowed him to even be standing there in the first place. City Light, when we see how much grace we've been given, we can give love and grace to others. 
They may not have earned it. They may not deserve it. But to not give this grace is to say that the grace that you've been given is not greater than the grace that you can offer. You understand? The grace that you've been given, to to say that I cannot give grace in this, is to say that the grace that you've been given from our Lord is not greater than a grace that you can give out. I don't know about you, though. Here's the deal. That's hard for me. That is really difficult for me to do. So I can let something go, maybe, but I don't know if I can pour on the grace on top of that. That's hard. Let me give you an example of my own life right now. So I have been betrayed. My trust has been, like, completely taken. Someone has hurt me on multiple occasions, and that's my earthly father. He's hurt me on many occasions, and I thought that I had forgiven him until I started working on this sermon. Now, God tends to do that to me a lot. And and what I found out is that I might have let go of some of his past deeds, but every time he does something else, I tend to hold on to that and not let it go. In fact, three months ago, he did it, and I haven't talked to him since. Now, I've tried to justify it in my head. Like, even this week, I was trying to, like, reconcile. It says, Mo, you got to be smart. You can't let the same person hurt you over and over and over again. Or I'd say, trust has to be earned. It can't be just freely given to anybody. And I know that he'll probably do it again. So why would I let this person back into my circle? Why would I let him back in? Can you relate to that? Is there someone in your life or in your family or in the family of God that's betrayed you, slandered you, lied to you, or hurt you really deeply? Isn't it difficult to do what Mephibosheth did? He could have easily just cut his losses, moved on, took half the inheritance, but he didn't. No, he responded with the grace and kindness of God that was given to him. This goes back to what we've been talking about before. We are no longer under the law of works, but under the law of grace. Meaning, we have the freedom to give grace infinitely because we've been given infinite grace. The way I get there... The way you get there is for us to start to realize that we're capable of the same thing. We are capable, if it wasn't for God's grace, we would lie to those people that love us. We would betray their trust for our own personal gain. We would turn our backs on our family members if it wasn't for God's grace. If we find ourselves in a moment saying, I'm mad at this person because I wouldn't do that, you're wrong. That's the sin in us, and God's saying, no, by my grace, I hold you back from that action. If we see ourselves as not being that bad, then we start to think God and everyone else owes us something. But we can have a humble posture by looking at our state apart from Jesus. We're worthless dead dogs that have been given a life and a position of royalty. Oh, how much grace could we offer those who would reciprocate that grace to us. But how much more grace can we offer those who don't deserve it because we've been given so much grace by our God? We cannot love like David did until we see that we've been loved like Mephibosheth. The first is inexhaustible grace. The second response is found in verse 30 here. It says, Oh, let him take it all. Here's the key part. Since my Lord the King has come home safely. Mephibosheth not only says, let him take all my stuff, but he also says why he is satisfied with losing everything and giving it to an unworthy foe. He says, since my Lord the king has come home safely, he was satisfied to be in the presence 
of his king and not have the presence, the gifts of his king. Is that your heart? Christian, is that your heart? A pastor named John Piper puts it this way. He says, if you could have heaven and have all of its luxuries that heaven has to offer, but Jesus wasn't there, would you want it? Would you like that heaven? Would you embrace that heaven? And I'm not going to pretend like all Christians are us or we are honest, but if we were honest, my bet is we'd say, yeah, I'll take it. No sin, peace, luxury, calm, joy. Without Jesus, I'll take it. If we're honest. But here's what the issue is. We've made this thing about going to heaven and getting heaven and the things of God when really what awaits us is way more valuable. It's way more valuable. It's more satisfying. It's more fulfilling than a simple trinket from our Lord or some sort of change of circumstances in our life. How small and powerless is our thought of our king? How ungrateful are we to see that that's not the goal? The goal is he himself. Jesus is the goal. We don't just get heaven, but we get Jesus. The lover of our soul, the founder of our faith, the sacrificial God, the maker of all things, the healer of the brokenhearted, the one who said, I love you even though you bring no value to the table. That's who we get. City Light, I want us to be a church that gives grace generously and longs to be in the presence of our God, that we would be a people who celebrate that we can sit at the feet of Jesus and gain him. Okay, so that sounds great, right? All that sounds really good up here, but what about Tuesday morning? What about when we go to class? What about when we start the regular motions of our week? Let's try to make it practical. So we've been given everything, and so therefore the response is a generous grace, right? So I think the first one, we can, we can open up our homes to our city groups and the people from our neighborhoods because it's not ours to begin with. You see, the the house you own, the car you drive, the money you make, it's not yours. It's actually God's. So knowing this should help us actually give it away freely because it's far easier to give someone else's possessions than your own. Like, so who wants this iPad right here? It's not mine, so I can give it to you, right? It's going to be easier for me to hand that to you if Isaac said, here, give this to somebody else than to say, hey, I'm going to take my very own possession and give it to you. And so we've been given things that aren't ours, so why wouldn't we give them away freely? Number two, we can extend extend a hand to the needy. We naturally help those who help us. But because we have been given so much, when we were helpless, we can help more. So church, would we give to people who can't give anything in return? Number three, the people in our city need to hear about the inexhaustible grace of our God so they can be part of the same royal family that you are. God has made his way with you or his way to you, and so therefore he can make his way to anybody. I think that that's what's displayed in the text. And he also gives them his image, like they bear the image of God. Humanity bears the image of God, so they have an inherent value. May we be a people that value people the way God values them, even if they can't give anything back. Let's not move away from them, but actually move toward them. Number four, the people in this church are your family, We're also called to give grace and love and mercy to the family of God. In fact, God tells us not to neglect the family of God. In Galatians 6, Paul says it this way. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Here's the key word. And especially to those who are in the household of faith. Don't neglect mercy and grace and love to your brothers and sisters. 
And number five, finally, because we get to be in the presence of our God, can we be a church that doesn't count our possessions as ultimate things? Can we give away our earthly holdings for eternal ones because we have been given Jesus? We get to dine at the king's table forever and ever and ever. In a moment, we will partake in the communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. This is actually a a beautiful picture we get to do because Jesus has invited us to his table. We are remembering that Jesus shed blood and his broken body allows us to be invited into his family. So if you are part of God's family, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, I want to invite you to dine with our king at the king's table. I would like to encourage you, though, to be mindful of two things as you walk up. One, by God's grace, he's pursued you in Jesus to be a part of his family. And number two, we can rejoice that we, we get to be with our king because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Amen?